Thanks for joining us this week for the Church at Sturkey Hills podcast. Be sure to visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. All right, good morning, church. That, that trip to Honduras, if you haven't been on an international mission trip, I'd really encourage you to consider going. There's a meeting on February 27th in the bridal room after the service. Um, would love to take a good group with us. You can see we have a lot of fun. It's a really, really good trip. We're going to go ahead and just dive into the message. This morning, um, last year, Joel asked me to speak probably in like June or so. It was during the summer. And uh, maybe some of you guys were here. I talked about freedom in Christ out of the book of Galatians. And um, we talked about what it means to be free in Christ, to be set free spiritually. Because Paul wrote this book, the book of Galatians, to the church in Galatia because a false gospel had come to them. And this, this false gospel was um, brought to them by Jewish men who claimed to be Christians who said, well, no, it's okay that you place your faith in Jesus. Like, that's all good. But salvation is from the Jews. And if you really want to be saved, then you need to convert to Judaism first. Men, you need to be circumcised. You need to follow all the Jewish traditions. You need to do everything that the Jews do in order to be saved. And so Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians explaining what freedom in Christ actually looked like and what it meant to be spiritually set free. In Galatians 5.1, he said this, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. The message was that Jesus saved you based on his grace and his mercy, not anything that you've done but you hearing the word and then believing the word. And when you try to add, to contribute to that, it's like you're walking right back into a prison cell. That you're walking away from freedom. Jesus says this in John 8, 36, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus saves us, not based on our own doing, but he gives us a new heart. He changes us from the inside out. He makes us new creations and we no longer have to live in sin. We no longer have to follow cultural trends We want to experience something different, something deeper. Last week, um, Joel said this when talking about someone who has been set free, who has been saved, that falls back into sin. He said, if you sin as a child of God, you sin not because sin has power over you, but because you choose not to walk in freedom. If you've gone from darkness to light, if you've been set free, you've been set on a new path of spiritual freedom. But, But what exactly does that path entail? What does that path look like? Well, we can look at the gospel accounts and see that that path looks like following Jesus, right? Because Jesus doesn't call someone to pray a prayer to stay where they're at. All right, good. Glad you got that figured out. Keep doing what you're doing. No, he says, come and follow me. Into the baptisms this morning that we had, that was a first step of following Jesus. They followed in baptism, Well, St. Paul that wrote about freedom in Christ, I guess you've already seen up here the the title of the message today. He also wrote this in Romans 6.22. He said, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. So the new path of spiritual freedom isn't just to wander around in the wilderness proclaiming, I'm free, I'm free. No, it's a call to deny ourselves. It's a call to the lordship of Christ in our life. It's a call to come and die. It's a call to be a slave to God. And Paul also wrote the book of Philippians, and that's where we're going to be at today. So the same Paul that wrote Galatians, he also wrote Philippians. And uh, when he wrote Philippians, we'll see here in a little bit, he was in a place where he had no physical freedoms at all. Nothing on the surface that someone in the world would look at and say, that's a free man. Had none of that. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, and the title of the sermon is Chained for Christ. You know, if if you go throughout history and you look at the church, and then even today, you look at the church and you'll see people who, who attempt great things for the Lord and they face intense suffering, intense persecution. Adoniram and Ann Judson were the first Baptist missionaries from America. They served in Burma in the early 1800s. And um, when they got there, soon after, Adoniram was arrested and he was placed in a death prison. Every single night, he was hung by his ankles from the ceiling of the prison. His face was nearly dragging the floor as he hung there through the night. And he tried to sleep with rats crawling over his face in the prison. 
Those were his nights for almost two years. Soon after he got out of prison, his wife, Ann Judson, died there in Burma. He then went into the jungle, made a grave for himself, and had a season of his life where he said all that he thought about was death. You guys were coming for an encouraging message, right? That's where he was at, though. That's where he was at in his life. But God delivered him from that. And this guy, Adoniram Judson, is known as the spiritual father for people in Burma. He ended up leading thousands to the Lord. He spent his life's work translating the Bible into their language. And it's still the Bible that they're using today. And there's about 4,000 Baptists there in Burma that consider Adoniram Judson as their spiritual father. But why the suffering, though? We wouldn't even say that this is a good man. We would say this is a man that's after the Lord's own heart. He's seeking the Lord. Why do things like this happen? It didn't just happen then, it's still happening this past week. These pastors on the screen, William Siraj and Patrick Naeem, excuse me, this was two weeks ago, on January 31st, they're pastors in Pakistan. It's one of the most dangerous countries in the world to to live as a Christian. Um, They were gunned down right after a church service, on a Sunday after their church service. One of them survived, the other one, he died immediately. Matthew 5.10 says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So how can you keep faith? How can you maintain a positive attitude in the midst of that kind of suffering when you're trying to seek the Lord with all your heart and is it even worth it? Well, today we're going to look at at the Apostle Paul and we're going to look at the book of Philippians when he is, according to his words, he is in chains for Christ. And we'll see how his perspective and his trial and in his imprisonment actually led to kingdom growth. So Paul wrote the book of Philippians with a very different attitude than he did Galatians. In Galatians, he was writing to rebuke a position that a lot of the people were taking. But in Philippians, he's writing it with a heart of gratitude and thankfulness. Because these people in Philippi had stuck with him since he planted the church there. They were faithful in giving to his ministry. They were praying for him. They were, they were partners in that. They helped take care of him when he was facing hardship. But there, for, for there even to be in a church in Philippi, it took a whole lot to happen for there to be this church there. It took men being obedient to God's call even when they had totally different plans. We're going to see that right here. There's a map I want to show you. If you've if you got a Bible, the map in your Bible is probably better if you have maps of Paul's missionary journey, but, uh, missionary journeys. But on his second missionary journey, around A.D. 50, he goes through the province of Galatia where he planted these churches on the fish, first missionary journey. That's in green up there. And they're wanting to go to, to Asia Minor, um, modern-day Turkey, and share the gospel there. And God does eventually lead them back around to there, to Ephesus, But at the time, it says that God would not let them or allow them to preach the gospel in that area. And so they go north to Bithynia. And it says that the Spirit would not let them preach the gospel in Bithynia. So then they go over to Troas, which is on the coast over here, up there near the top of the screen. And Paul sees a vision from this Macedonian man, which Macedonia is over there, orange. He sees a vision from him that says, come over here and help us. And so he knows that God's calling him and calling his people to go over to Macedonia. And they end up in the city of Philippi. And when they end up there, they don't sit around and wait. They go immediately like they do every time they go to any other city. And they start sharing the gospel. Now, it starts in most cities in the synagogue. But in Philippi, there weren't enough Jewish people to have a synagogue. So he goes to the river and he meets a woman named Lydia. And he shares the gospel with her. She believes. Her whole family comes to believe. They're baptized. The next thing we see in, in Uh, The book of Acts is that he cast a demon out of a girl who was basically following them and harassing them, and she was a fortune teller. And when he did this, it cost her owners big time because they were profiting a lot of money off of this woman and her fortune telling. It It was a young girl, actually. Well, he's thrown into prison, and most of you will remember the story of Paul and the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas are in prison And we see this in Acts 16, 25. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So you guys know what happens next, right? They're miraculously released from prison. The gates are open, their chains come off. The prison guard thinks that Paul and Silas and all the other prisoners escaped, and he's about to kill himself, and Paul stops him. He shares the gospel with him. The the man asks, what must I do to be saved? 
He shares with him, and then, he sh- and then his whole family comes to Christ. So now we've got two families in Philippi. We've got Lydia's family. We've got the Philippian jailer, at least those two, that we know they've received the Lord. So there's a church in Philippi now. Paul wasn't given a grant from the Roman government to go to Philippi and start a church. He, he didn't have um, a building there, but they were meeting in the home of Lydia, it says, and there's a church. And then that church continues to grow. And as far as we know, this is the first church plant on the continent of Europe. And Lydia is the first Christian convert on the continent of Europe. So about 11 years after that, 10 to, 10 to 12 years or so, in AD 60 to 62, after he planted that church in Philippi, leading Lydia and her family, leading the Philippian jailer and his family to the Lord, he writes this book of Philippians to explain his situation now. And again, he finds himself in an unfavorable position from the outside looking in, and that's under house arrest in Rome. And this is what he says in his letter in verses 12 through 18 of Philippians 1, writing back to the church in Philippi, starting in verse 12. It says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. First point on Back Your Worship Guide is Paul's imprisonment advances the gospel. His imprisonment advances the gospel. In verse 12, there's a phrase here that you might just read over really quickly. It says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it's kind of like an aside, like what has happened to me? Well, he's in jail. He's, he's getting to that. But a lot has happened to him for him to get to where he's at. Now, back in the book of Acts, he wants to go down to Jerusalem. Okay, Paul, Paul's ready to go, go back down to Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was not a safe place for him to go. All right, so he's given a prophetic word that basically if he goes down to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested and he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And he says something um, that's profound that he's ready to die for the gospel if, that, what it, if that's what it takes. So he goes down and he is arrested And he's accused of bringing a Gentile person into the synagogue, which was like a big no-no for the Jews, all right? So he's accused of this, of bringing this Gentile person to the synagogue, and he does two years in prison in Caesarea after being convicted of nothing. The governor there, his name was Felix, and what the Word of God tells us is that Felix wanted to please the Jews. And to do that, he left Paul sitting there in a prison for two years. The next governor is a guy named Festus. This guy Festus comes in. He wants to see Paul. Paul comes before him. He can't find anything to convict Paul of, but Paul appeals to Caesar. He says he wants to go to Caesar. He wants to go to Rome. He's a Roman citizen. He wants to go to Rome and appeal to Caesar. Well, the problem is Festus and King Agrippa, they can't figure out what even to tell Caesar, what to tell the emperor. Like, they're not sure because Paul hasn't done anything wrong by their estimation. Well, I would contend and say this, that Paul appealed to Caesar because of something that God told him two years earlier, the first night after he was arrested in Acts 23, 11, God said this, it says, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God revealed to Paul that he would preach the gospel, that he would tell the facts in Rome the same way that he did in Jerusalem. Now, two years later, he's been sitting in a jail. There's no way that his desires, that his expectations when he was told that was, okay, I'm going to do two years in prison first. He's probably thinking, okay, I'm going to get out soon. I'll get out tomorrow. I'll get out in a week. And me and my crew are going to go to Rome and we're going to go preach the gospel there. But instead, he finds himself two years in a prison in Caesarea. So he's probably at that point thinking, well, God said I was going to go to Rome. I believe what the Lord says. I haven't had an opportunity. I got an opportunity before the governor again. I'm going to appeal to Caesar. I'll go to Rome as a prisoner. In 2018, Kelsey and I were living in the Philippines. And um, 
we were seeing a lot of fruit in the ministry we were doing. We were um, able to baptize a lot of kids and we saw a lot of kids coming to faith. And um, I, I was really close in my walk with the Lord at that point. And I really felt like, well, he's calling us to, to international missions. This is gonna be something that's long-term. And um, now here we are three and a half years later and uh, working here at the church, have a son, have another son on the way, and we aren't living in the Philippines. They're on the international mission field. We're still here. Um, not to say that we won't someday, but, but our timing a lot of times is not what God has planned. Isaiah 55, eight and nine says this, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. A lot of times the biggest hindrance for us following God is our own ways, our own thoughts, our own plans, our own goals. Joel put it a couple weeks ago, it's our own kingdom. You know, we, we pray thy kingdom come. We've been going through the Lord's prayer. We pray thy kingdom come. And then the way we live is like, no, my kingdom's already here. My personal kingdom is right here. I'm building it right now. But Paul wasn't interested in his kingdom. He was interested in God's kingdom growth and reaching the lost and following God no matter what it looked like. We're gonna see that here in his life in just a second, but maybe you plan for something. You know, maybe you're an athlete, you plan for something, then you have a serious injury and it's not how, how you planned it. Maybe it's a marriage not going how you thought it was gonna go. Maybe it's a job that you just want out of. Maybe it feels like that your personal kingdom that you've been building for yourself is just crumbling all around you. Is, how does God receive any glory out of that? How does that work? For Paul, it worked because he wasn't interested in his personal kingdom. It goes on in verse 12 and says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. See, after facing two years in prison in Caesarea, after now going, after now going uh, to Rome and, and it being extremely hard to get there. I mean, the guy was shipwrecked. The guy was bitten by a poisonous snake. The, the prisoners, the guards contemplated, let's just kill all of them so they don't run away. He's gone through all this and now he's in Rome with another two-year process before he can even make an appeal to Caesar and his attitude is, wow, God has really used this to advance the gospel. Look what he's doing. He rejoices in this. His circumstances have opened the opportunity for other people to be saved. He's more concerned with the eternal spiritual condition of other people than he has the temporary physical condition that he finds himself in. At this time, um, most believe it's also when he wrote the book of Ephesians, when he wrote the book of Colossians. So there's these epistles, these books that he writes that we're still using thousands of years later to reach people with God's word that God used in this time when he was under house arrest in Rome to be able to write this stuff. God was using this time to advance the gospel. Instead of Paul being set free physically, which looks advantageous on the surface a lot of times, he's using his circumstances and testimony for others to be set free spiritually. You know, a lot of times we just wanna see the, the physical miracle. There, there are ministries that make tens of millions of dollars because people wanna see the physical, physical miracle, right? And that's okay that we wanna see a miracle. In John 6, we see a story where um, people come to Jesus and, and a very familiar story, a Sunday school story. He feeds 5,000 people, 5,000 men, not counting women and children, and they continue to follow him. And in John 6, 26, he says this, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So when he says not that you saw signs, it's, he's saying not because you saw what I did and you believe that I am the Messiah, that you believe that I am the son of God, but because you got your fill and you want more of that. And the Philippians that Paul was writing to, they came to know Paul by hearing about a physical miracle. When Paul was in the prison in Philippi, an earthquake comes and the gates are open and his chains are released. So they might be thinking, wait, you're writing to us? You've been in prison for, for how long? Four years, five years? Why hasn't God done a miracle? Maybe you're not on God's side anymore because when we knew you, you were released from prison the first night that you were here. God can display his power in this way, but God is always more concerned with the spiritual condition of man. And Paul's saying, don't despair over me because I am in chains, but be happy, rejoice because the gospel is going forward. So how's it going forward? The second point is that Paul's imprisonment serves lost people. 
Paul's imprisonment serves lost people. In verse 13, he says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He says he is in jail for Christ. Now, when he says this, you read this, it kind of flies in the face of a lot of prosperity preaching that says when you get saved, it's, it's health, wealth, everything's gonna go well for you because if you look at the outside and that was the way you believed, then why is he still in prison after all this time? But he is committed or more committed than anyone you can read about throughout all of history to following Jesus and to the gospel. Maybe you'll find someone that's as committed to Paul as Paul is, but Paul is as committed as anyone to following Christ, and this is the position that he finds himself in. This is the position that he finds himself. First Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And John 16.33 says, I have said these things to you that, you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You know, we've been saved to look forward to an eternal kingdom and, and to live for that now. And when someone's doing it, it's evident. It's evident in their lives. And it was evident in Paul's life. And because of that, he was able to use that for the ministry to grow and for him to reach people through it. If you go back to verse 13, it says in verse 13, it tells us who knows about Paul's imprisonment, that he's in chains for Christ. It says the whole imperial guard and all the rest. That's who knows. It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So the imperial guard and all the rest, who is this? Well, the Romans, the Romans of high status in that kingdom, the Romans that have a voice with people know why Paul is still sitting in house arrest there. This is kind of what it would look like if you look um, at historical documents that shows kind of what this house arrest was like at that time. For two years, his ankle bracelet would have been a Roman Praetorian guard. A Roman Praetorian guard doing six-hour shifts, four different guards a day, chained to Paul. He's asleep there, chained to him. Goes to the bathroom, chained to him. Eats something, chained to him. You have to understand that these guards, they're part of a 9,000-man unit. They were elite soldiers that basically were responsible for emperor-making. They would assassinate kings if they didn't like them. One time they actually excuse me, auctioned the emperorship to the highest bidder. They were the most elite soldiers in the empire. And those are the guys that Paul is chained to. What kind of things do you think those soldiers would have heard and seen while chained to the apostle Paul? Well, they surely would have heard the gospel. They would have heard about the death and resurrection of Christ. They would have heard about how to be saved, how to have eternal life. They would have heard his testimony. They would have heard about the Damascus road. They would have heard about miracles of Jesus. They would have heard about his life before and how God showed him and opened up his eyes, how Jesus fulfilled these Old Testament prophecies. And what else would they would have seen? They would have seen a humble, honest guy who was sharing God's word and who had friends who were gaining nothing out of coming and taking care of him, but continued to do so. What do I mean by that? Well, if you were thrown in a Roman prison, it's a little bit different than being in prison here in the U.S. You're not given food, you're not given clothes, you're given nothing. Nothing. They see it as, you got yourself in trouble, you got thrown in prison, take care of yourself. So he had people who brought him gifts who helped take care of him. That's actually how he finds himself Writing this, a, a guy named Epaphroditus comes and brings him a gift, and he's from Philippi, and Paul um, writes and gives him the letter to take back. In Acts 28, 30 through 31, it, he, he writes about his time in Rome. Uh, Luke does. It says he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So they would have seen the, the brotherly love that Paul had with other believers, the people that were coming to him. Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. These guards would have seen that. It would have been evident to them. As a result of Paul being under house arrest for these couple of years, he was getting an audience. An audience of people coming to him, an audience of well-respected Roman Praetorian guards, and they heard about Christ 
They heard him share with others. He shared with them, and they were able to tell others about him. What would someone hear if they were chained to you for 24 hours? Think about that. What, is, what would they hear you talk about? What kind of things would they see you do if someone's just handcuffed to you? Someone that's not a believer, someone you don't know. You know, I think a lot of us wouldn't say a word about Christ. We'd be too scared. We'd be too ashamed. We don't want to be too pushy. We want to, you know, get to know the person better first. We'd worry about them rejecting us or arguing with us. In Luke 9, 26, Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And in Romans, Paul wrote that if it was, if it was in the same book, it would almost seem as if it's a response to that. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he wasn't ashamed to share with these soldiers, even though he found himself in terrible circumstances. He could be thinking, well, when I get out of this prison, I'll meet back up with my guys and we'll get the ministry going again. It was rolling. We did a few missionary journeys. I just got to get out of here and then we'll start again. Now, he's still going on. Right where he's at, he's still going on. Pastor Paul Laboutier said this, our circumstances that look very limiting do not limit God. Our circumstances that look very limiting do not limit God. Just because you feel limited does not mean that God is limited. God will give you, if he calls you to an assignment, he will give you the ability, he will give you the character, he will give you what is required to carry that out. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, Paul wrote, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And he looked to be in terrible circumstances, but he continued on. He continued to follow the Lord. And sometimes, and I'm guilty of this too, we just want to wait for that perfect moment to invite someone to church, to share something, to share Christ with others. We don't want it to be awkward. We want really good circumstances. We want to be ready, but, but we, we wait. We wait on circumstances um, to be perfect. And Kelsey and I, um, we do some things well. One of the things we don't do well is just being open with people um, in our own neighborhood and sharing with people in our neighborhood or inviting people in our neighborhood to church. And I have a million excuses I can throw, but they're excuses, right? I don't get home till real late. We're doing things with youth. We're doing this. We're doing that. We're doing things with missions, right? But really, they're just excuses, well, a couple weeks ago, we came home from church, pulled into my driveway. Um, my neighbor on one side, they're super nice, but we hardly ever talk to them. Hey, how's it going? You having a good day? It's about it. And they've been there since we've been there. And um, he knows what I do, and he knows that we were gone in 2018 because we were overseas and stuff. Well, I pull in, I see a $20 bill sitting in the guy's yard. I go pick up the $20 bill, go knock on his door, and uh, ask him if it's his. And um, wasn't his. He said, nah, man, sure's keep it. It's not mine. Guess the wind blew it over here, whatever. We chat for a little bit. I invite him to church, have a little talk with him. I leave, come back over. Kelsey's standing over on the porch. And uh, she says, isn't it pathetic that God had to pay you $20 to go invite someone to church? I was like, yeah, that, <laughs> that is pretty sorry. That's pretty bad. So, um, yeah, we're pretty bad at that. This, uh, Blake and Heather Kidwell, who are members of this church, they live next to us, and then we left and went overseas and came back, and then we come to church, and they're here. Well, they weren't at church here when, when we lived next to them, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't us, but um, we don't want it to be awkward. We want sharing the gospel to be like, has to be the perfect circumstances, has to set up just right, right? Well, for Paul, I mean, sharing the gospel with killer soldiers who were chained to the dude 24 hours of the day had to be pretty awkward. I mean, Paul was weak, but where he was weak, Christ was strong. You know, we don't have to have perfect circumstances to share Christ and what he's done for us. The stars don't need to align for you to go deeper in your walk with God, for you to do a 21 days of prayer and fasting, for you to go on a mission trip, for you to get in the word more, because if you're waiting for the perfect moment to surrender to the Lord, you're going to be waiting your whole life because you always can stay busy. 
This culture always keeps us busy. You'll be focused on your school, then your job, then your marriage, then your kids, your career. I need to save. I need to retire. I need to have this, have that. And you'll live a lukewarm life and you'll miss out on God's will and God's will for your life because you're waiting for that perfect moment to get involved on a deeper level. Pastor Kevin King, he talks about Paul's perspective in this circumstance and how his perspective was, was different. He says Paul's perspective wasn't that he was chained to the Roman Praetorian Guard, but that the Roman Praetorian Guard was chained to him. And that guard was gonna hear about Jesus. What are you chained to that seems like a terrible, terrible circumstance? It might be a relationship, it might be a job, something that you just feel stuck in, like you're treading water in. But if you take the perspective of Paul in that, And instead of you feeling like you're just being weighed down by this thing, you shine the light of Christ in that. Do you care more about the culture around you and the conveniences of this life, or do you care about Christ, his kingdom, and his perspective? Do you care more about advancing and building the kingdom of God and surrendering to Christ, or do you care more about being liked by other people? I find that to be the case a lot of time with, with students, a lot of time with adults. We just want other people to like us. You know, when, when you face adversity, when hard times come to you, does the light of Christ shine brighter to others? Can people look at you and say, like, wow, they're going through a terrible time. I get that. But, like, how do they still have that kind of joy? How is that still there in their life at this time? Because when they can, when they can see that, it serves those who don't know Jesus. It shows them something else. And they might not come to faith through that, but it might give you a platform to share why you're like that. To share who Christ is with them and to lead them to Jesus and do it through your testimony and through your witness and what Christ has done for you. But it also serves believers. It serves other believers when we have this kind of joy and, we have, and when we're bold. Because these things are contagious. Courage, boldness, they're things that are contagious. Number three is Paul's imprisonment strengthens believers. Verse 14 says, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. How many in here would say that something that's a little bit scary, something you're not sure about, you become more confident in doing it if you see somebody else do it first? Definitely, right? That's natural. You know, we take the kids to the lake, it's like, you see someone else jump off the cliff. You see someone else do a rope swing. You see someone else jump off that bridge. Like, I'm more confident to do it. Might be a stupid thing. I saw someone else do it. They did it. They were okay. They came up. I'm going to do it. I heard, I heard uh, Omaria and some of the kids talking about senior skip day. Like, you don't want to be the only person to skip on senior skip day. You want other people to do it too. You don't want to just skip to skip and be the only one out. We become more confident when other people are willing to do what's right or, in some cases, willing to do what's wrong. There's an experiment by Stanley Milgram, a Yale psychiatrist, called the Milgram Experiment. And these people came, uh, some of you may, may have heard about it. These people came into a room, and there was a participant um, that they believed was being shocked, was being electrocuted. And this person is told to push a button until we tell you to stop by the person that they perceive has authority. That's all they know about the experiment. Now the person's not really being shocked, but they got people who acted and sure pretended that they were doing a good job, uh, and sure did a good job at pretending that they were being shocked, okay? So these people are in serious pain. These people are asking the police stop. These people are, look like they are suffering terribly, but they continue to turn the dial up and pretend that it's, it's shocking them worse, it's shocking them worse. Keep pushing the button, keep pushing the button. 65% of the participants pushed that button until it was all the way to the top because they perceived this person with authority knew what they were doing. It didn't matter what they saw was going on. 65% of people continued to do it. Only 35% of people stopped at some point in the experiment. What's crazy is that number of 65% of people that did it all the way to the end dropped from 65% to 10% of people when they saw someone in front of them who said, no, nah, I'm, I'm not gonna hit it again. I'm not gonna push the button again. Boldness and courage 
is contagious. The point is this, that people are more likely to display that when they see others doing it. I go on mission trips to Kenya, and Keith and Tanya Tackett were here earlier this morning, and we go out into the bush, far away from anything, far away from any city. Um, A lot of the people out there can't read, and the way we share the gospel is through a story cloth. And hanging on the top of a truck, people we've never seen in our lives, and share with them and have a translator there with us. It can be intimidating the first time that you do it, but... I went, Keith said, you want to go first? You want me to go first? I said, you go first. Let me see you do it. He's done it hundreds of times. I see him do it. Saw what he did. Good. I can do that. I got that. Next time I did it, but it helped me to see him do it. Paul's boldness and courage to share the gospel and for his ministry to grow while he was in prison. That empowered other believers to speak the word of God fearlessly as well because they came confident and they became bold because they saw the joy that he had in his trial. They saw that God would take care of him in in these circumstances and they saw that God could still use him even from prison. It's contagious. You know, faith can be deepened in great persecution we see this around the world like right now. In China, about five years ago, it started getting way, way harder on people, on Christians, from the outside looking in. Kids aren't allowed. You're not allowed to take the kids to church. Every church is under surveillance. Not allowed to post anything on the internet anymore. Nothing on any social media outlets or anything on the internet that you can see in China that has anything to do with Christianity, inviting you to come to church, anything like that, non-existent. But what we hear out of China is that the church continues to grow. There's a pastor in Iran where the largest growing Christian church in the world is that said if people would just not say anything about Christ, they'd be fine. They'd be good. They don't care if they believe in Jesus. They care when they're talking about it, when they're sharing it with other people. That's when they really care. That's when real persecution comes down. But the people in Iran continue to share Christ anyway, and the church continues to grow. I want to show a a video real quick. Now, the words are down at the bottom, so you get, hopefully you don't have to squint and stuff too hard, but it's in Korean, um, and it's about a girl in North Korea and her story. Kiribo,我们的基督徒们要记得，我们的基督徒们要记得，我们的基督徒们要记得，我们的基督徒们要记得，我们的基督徒们要记得，我们的基督徒们要记得，我们的基督徒们要记得，我们的基督徒们要记
그러나 우리는 이것을 축복으로 압니다. 아버지께로 가는 지름길이기 때문입니다. 그러나 공교롭게도 부탁이 하나 더 있습니다. 우리를 위하여 기도하는 분들에게 우리가 얼마나 감사한 마음을 가지고 있는지 전달해 주시기를 부탁드립니다. 우리는 여기서 건강하게 잘 견디겠습니다. 그리고 북한 땅에 계속해서 주님의 복음을 전하겠습니다. 여러분의 잠에 올리니 Now that um, that video obviously wasn't shot in North Korea, right? I don't think Open Doors took a, a crew over there to shoot that. Me and Tanner were looking at it, and he kind of joked about it and said that he thinks it was shot over in the Smokies, like in Cades Cove or something. But uh, but, but in all seriousness, though, um, you look at a video like that, and the the words that were on the screen, it's from a letter that she wrote. She escaped to China for a short time, and China's an authoritarian state. We just talked about it, but for her, that would have been freedom. China would have been freedom, and she went back into North Korea, where if you were caught as a Christian, you are killed or you are sent to slavery for the rest of your life. And so she's sent back, she goes back to the plantation where she's working. If you read in the letter, she's given some soup every day, She might get a little bit of rice, enough to stay alive. But she's got a Bible study of other people that live there, about six people or so. I mean, they're exiled far from a city or anything that she meets and that they do a secret Bible study. And she shares the word with. And because of that, she went back. You know, maybe Satan has used the luxuries and the lack of persecution, really, that we face here in the States to lure us to sleep and keep us from really relying on Christ and following him the way many people around the world do. Because I guarantee you when people, when when her brothers and sisters who were there see her and she got away and she came back and the boldness that she has, that it makes them more courageous, more bold in their faith as well. You know, if you have other believers who are around you who are really seeking to follow the Lord, to follow Christ and do what's right, it'll help you become more bold in your faith too. Try to surround yourself with people like that. The fourth point is that Paul's imprisonment empowers preaching. His imprisonment empowers preaching. Verse 15, it says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me. In my imprisonment. So here's what you have here. Some people supported Paul. They see that he's in prison and it's making them more bold. I'm going to share the gospel too. I'm going to do what Paul was doing. I trust in God too. And then others, they saw it as an opportunity to kind of rise above Paul. They wanted to be more popular. They thought, okay, well, Paul's in prison. Well, now it's my time. It was out of a selfish ambition that they did this. They saw it as an opportunity to to surpass Paul, to have this competitive edge. And they preached to try to become more popular. And and I mean, this is still alive in the church today, right? And I mean, we even talk about it in circles and stuff. You know, the music at that church, come to my church, the music is better, the teaching is better, this, that, and the other, right? Like it's this competition. Well, Paul had people that were competing against him. And he says they preached out of rivalry His response to this, he didn't care. He could care less. He he couldn't care less. The fifth point is Paul's imprisonment is full of rejoicing. Paul's imprisonment is full of rejoicing. Verse 18 says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. He didn't care. He rejoiced. As long as they were preaching the gospel, as long as Christ was being proclaimed, we care so much about criticisms 
of other people. I mean, if this was someone today, they're probably going straight to social media to defend themselves and talk about how what so-and-so said about them is not true. He wasn't interested in that. He was interested in the gospel going forward. His attitude was simply, if Jesus is being proclaimed, then praise God if they're doing it for a reason that's nefarious, that's, that's nasty, that's against me, whatever. I'll let God deal with that. As long as the gospel is going forward. He wasn't gonna fight back against that. He wasn't, he wasn't gonna concern himself with that. A side note here, one thing that Paul did concern himself with was when someone was sharing something that was a false gospel, right? In the book of Galatians, he said that if someone comes and they proclaim a different gospel than what I've told you, then let that person be accursed. His attitude was, if you preach the gospel, I don't care what your motives are. If it's bad, then God will deal with you, but at least the gospel message is going out. But if you preach a false gospel, I don't care how good your motives are, you're dangerous, you need to be stopped. Good motives, this is the message, good motives never excuse a false message. But how is it that he could approach criticism in that kind of way, still rejoicing, all the stuff that he was going through? Matthew 5, 43 and 44 says, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus gave the command to pray for our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. And if you're truly doing this, if this is truly you in your life, man, it's hard to genuinely do that and stay mad at someone. And then we see in verse 18, in closing at the end of verse 18, the joy that he had. I'll read the whole verse again. It says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. How? How could he rejoice? How could Adoniram Judson, who we looked at earlier, after sitting by a grave, thinking about death, how could he still find joy? How can the girl we watched the video about continue on? How was Paul able to rejoice in what was going on? Chained to a guard day and night, the people that should be his brothers, some of them speaking negatively about him, trying to get rid of him, he's in prison, let him go. His joy was not dictated by his circumstances. It was dictated by a savior. His joy was dictated on his relationship with Christ and what he had done for him. He was able to live above his circumstances. Jesus dictates true joy. It's kind of be a plug for Joel next week. He's starting the book of James, James 1, 2, and 3. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We can rejoice as believers because of Jesus, because of what he's overcome, because of what he has done for us. The trials we face, the testing of our faith, the hard times God is using them to make us more steadfast and make us look more like his son. And we see that in Paul's life, and we see it in the lives of great heroes of the faith, some we've looked at here today and many others, and you see it in the lives of some people around you, and maybe that's you, and other people see it in you. But in Christ, we can rejoice in spite of our circumstances, and that joy is something that will empower other believers. That boldness, that courage will be contagious, and that joy ultimately will point others to Jesus. Bow your heads with me this morning. Do you know that joy? Maybe you've never experienced that. Maybe you've never thought of joy as anything more than an emotion. Joy is constant in Christ. It's not an emotion. Every single one of us separated from God because of our own sin, because of what we've chosen to do. But while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. penalty, the wages of sin. If you die in that state is death and an eternal death separated from God, but in Christ you can have life, abundant life and eternal life. If you, you've never received that into your life, if you've never experienced that and you feel the Lord tugging on your heart this morning and that's you, I'd ask you to pray something similar to this. God, I confess that I'm a sinner 
And today I repent of my sin. I believe, Jesus, that you are the Son of God. I believe that you lived a life that I never could, a perfect life, that you died a death that I deserve. And I believe that you rose again from the dead. Today I ask, Lord, that you would give me your spirit, make me a new person. I want to follow you. Today I make you Lord of my life. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you, Jesus, for doing what I never could do. I trust completely and fully and totally 100% in you and your sacrifice for me. Lord God, I, I thank you for this day. I, I praise you, Lord, for the opportunity to just come to this church, to come to this place where so many people around the world have no opportunity to do anything like this, God, help us not to take it for granted and help us to leave this place today with hearts of joy, with courage, with boldness, ready to go and do your work to be the hands and feet of Jesus right here where we're at and around the world. I pray if there's one in here today that received you into their life, that they would make that public, that they would follow in the next step of believer's baptism, Lord. Lord God, you are so good to us. You've given us so much, Lord. Thank you again, Jesus, for this day. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the life that we can have through your Son. I praise you. I love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Guys, we're going to stand and, and sing a song, and um, I'll be down front. I don't... Joel... I assumed he'll be down front. But, but if you receive the Lord into your life today, if you want to come forward, altar's open to pray, and uh, someone will be down here to talk to you if you need someone to talk to. We hope that God spoke to you through this message. If you enjoyed the message, be sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Be sure to join us again next week. Until then, may God bless you.